Good morning, church. I just want to add my, my welcome to you today on this Resurrection Sunday. It's so good to be with you and to worship together with you. Uh, this weekend, we have been in Matthew's gospel. On Friday, we considered Matthew's account of the death of Jesus. And today, we're going to consider his account of the, the resurrection. So we're going to read together now from Matthew 27, verse 62. And we're going to go all the way through to Matthew 28, verse 15. Verse 62, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we come before you um, after a week that has been uh, a difficult week, Lord, uh, a challenging week for most and a a tragic week for some. We are grateful, Lord, that we can come together um, to look at the empty tomb and to behold our, our risen Lord. We thank you for the hope and the glory that we see there, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes today and that our hearts would be filled with this truth and with the comfort of the empty tomb. 
Thank you, Lord, that you rose again and that you are indeed even now interceding on our behalf. So, Holy Spirit, we pray you would do your work in us today. Amen. Uh, the, the British Methodist minister, W.E. Sangster, uh, died of a, a disease that caused a progressive um, atrophy in his muscles. Uh, before he died, his voice completely um, gave way and his legs became useless. And on Easter morning, it was a few weeks before he died, he found pen and paper and shakily he wrote a letter to his daughter. And in this letter, he said this. He said, it is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, he is risen. But it would still be more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. Maybe you are scratching your head if you saw the sermon title wondering why is the title called a not so happy Easter. Now the events of this week have been tremendously challenging and have been tragic for, for many people, but the title does not reflect the belief that this year, what is happening in our world and what is happening in our lives trumps the reason for Easter joy. That's not the reason for the title. The opposite is true, actually. I think it is good that we can gather after a week like we've had, gather to look at the resurrection. It is undiminishable in its glory. Our, our King is undiminishable in His glory. But rather the title reflects the truth that we see in Matthew's account. That Matthew has a unique focus on a group of people at the end of his gospel for whom it was a not so happy Easter. They weren't ready for it. They didn't want it when it, come, when it came. As an inclusio for Jesus' resurrection appearance, he, he alone, Matthew, includes this detail of the, the seedy arrangement that was made between the Jewish leaders and the Roman God as they tried to cover up the truth. These men are who Sangster was speaking about when he, he said, they are those who are have able voice and yet did not want to shout the truth. Rather, they wanted to silence what happened. Now, why does Matthew include this story? Why not just on this day focus on the joy of the disciples that they had when they met with Jesus? We know that Matthew is writing for the sake of worship. He wants his readers to be convinced of the truth. He wants them to see and know Jesus is King he writes to his own people, to the Jews, to convince them of this fact. So why the focus at the end on this failure to worship? I believe the answer is in the last line that we read in verse 15. He says, and this story, it's the story of um, the disciples coming in and stealing the body of Jesus. He says, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. See, when Matthew is writing, probably a few decades after the events of the cross. This story is still popular among the people. It is a, a counter-narrative to the narrative of the resurrection of Christ. No, he didn't rise. His di disciples just stole the body. Throughout the history of the church, there have been theories like this, theories that have been put forward in order to be able to dismiss the resurrection accounts and they, they garner a following because people do want to latch onto something that would be able to allow them not to have to believe in the resurrection. Because if you believe in the resurrection, it does demand something, doesn't it? 
Have you heard of the swoon theory, for example? Anybody heard of the swoon theory? The theory that Jesus didn't actually die when he went to the cross. He just passed out on the cross. And then he was put in the grave. He was buried. And somehow in his battered, wounded state, without any medical attention, he was able to unwrap himself and then move the great stone away and escape. There's the wrong tomb theory. The disciples, when they came looking for his body, they just in the darkness were confused and they went to the wrong tomb. And then presumably nobody corrected them. Nobody said, no, not, not that tomb, that tomb. Nobody produced a dead body. There's the mass hallucination theory. Despite the science we have on this, this theory states that the whole group of disciples visually hallucinated the same thing somehow. Or this theory as well. And this theory has been around since then, that the disciples stole the body and they lied about the resurrection and then they got themselves killed for their fake religion. Matthew wants to address this so his readers are able to weigh up the evidence and we certainly benefit today 2,000 years later. What Matthew does as well, he gives us a, a different vantage point from which to come to the resurrection. We see in Matthew's gospel the opportunity to see it from the, the enemy's eyes, from the eyes of those who were not excited about the resurrection. So today, what can the Roman gods and the Jewish leaders teach us this Easter? How can they, in a wonderfully ironic way, aid our worship today? That's how we approach this passage. I have three headings, three things for us to see today for the sake of our joy on Easter Sunday. Number one, we see in them, we see an amazing overconfidence. There's an amazing overconfidence to this first section in verses 62 to 66 of chapter 27. Did you know that Tom Cruise is in the country right now filming uh, Mission Impossible, um, number eight or something like that? I'm not sure which one it is. In every film, we see Cruz doing the impossible, his physics-defying stunts on a mission that you can't believe he could possibly achieve throughout the movie. Somehow, in the end, he wins out. He wins out in the end. Well, very recently, he was filming in KZN, filming in the Drakensberg and in Durban. I saw an ENCA report on it, the excitement in the tourist industry in our province that this movie is going to put KZN on the, the map, so to speak. Uh, I saw this, this was as early as two weeks ago, and I don't know if he, he got all the filming he needed done in KZN, um, or if the, the Mission Impossible became the actual filming itself. But in this first section of our test, what we see is uh, an agreement made between men and an impossible task assigned. Men are given a mission that was doomed to fail from the start. Of course, on the Saturday morning after Jesus died on the cross, uh, this day after the day of preparation, the Sabbath day, they didn't know it yet. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they approach Pilate. We see them groveling in this passage to a man they actually in their hearts despise. Sir or Lord, they say, They'll say whatever they need to to get what they want. They came as though deferent. They come as those 
who are the defenders of the truth, those humble defenders of the truth. Sir, we remember how that imposter said, the word can actually mean that deceiver. This is how they speak of Jesus, the ones who will later finance a great cover-up of the truth. Verse 63, so we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. The first fraud they're talking about must be the the fact that he claimed to be the Messiah, and many people believed that he was the Messiah, and it caused a lot of trouble for them. Well, imagine if this became the resurrected Messiah. Imagine the trouble that would cause if everything Jesus said about himself was vindicated by that action of resurrection. Well, that's what the disciples will say. Let's guard the tomb so they don't steal his body. But what we actually find amazing in this passage is that they are remembering words that Jesus spoke that don't seem to be in the disciples' minds at all. If you read the gospel accounts, they're ascribing and attributing to the disciples something that was beyond them in their uh, grief-stricken and battered state. The disciples have scattered. They've fled into the night. They're defeated and, and hiding in their homes. Maybe this group, they say, will come to steal the body so they can lie and say, see, his words came true. There's an amazing admission in this, implicit. Jesus said that he would suffer, and he did. He said that he would be lifted up and die, and he did. The only thing that hasn't come to pass is this final thing. He said, I will die, I will rise on the third day. For those who are so attentive to his words, they are so tragically hard of hearing. And this is still true today, isn't it? Even in our churches, these men are on edge. They are the ones so adamant that he can't be the Messiah and yet so worried in this passage. Matthew wants you to feel the tension. Three times he uses the word secure. Go make it secure. Verse 64, 65, and 66. So Pilate gives in. He gives them the guard of soldiers and they seal the tomb and the guard is set. And I love the irony of this. They did more damage to their cause in this action than they could possibly know. By setting the seal and placing the guard in place, whatever else you would make of what happened on this day, the one thing you can be sure of is that that the disciples did not steal the body. If they hadn't done it, if they hadn't posted a guard, they could later then more easily just say, no, the disciples came and stole the body. But now the fact that the the seal had to be broken right under Rome's nose made the lie more messy, doesn't it? Made it more hard to believe. So off the guards go. What are we assigned to do? We've got to guard a tomb. Guard the tomb of that, that, that man who died. What an easy assignment, the easiest assignment we've ever been given. That pathetic rabble is finished. We saw them flee into the shadows. They were defeated without even a fight. Let us bring dice and and drink. Maybe if we're lucky, somebody will actually try something and we can finish them off as well. Their gaze is set outward, confident, uncaring, 
no thought to what might possibly be going on inside the tomb. They didn't bank on God himself breaking out and spoiling the plot. Go make it as secure as you can. And that's what they did. Men gave it their best shot and they failed. And we can't blame the guards. It was ever a a mission impossible. As Matthew Henry says this, all the powers of earth and hell combined could not keep Jesus a prisoner. They couldn't do it. It's like trying to keep a lion caged in a cardboard box. So it would have been like us walking outside in the middle of the day and, and shouting to the rain, telling it when to start and when to stop. We'd have more hope of that than keeping Jesus in the grave. Luke, the doctor, would later say, Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The gods, they had no hope. If death itself was an enemy too weak for Jesus, what hope these trembling men? And why is it that they can't keep him down? Why can't the chief priests and the soldiers keep him in the grave? It's because they aren't the reason he went to the grave. They aren't the reason. Pilate and mobs, chief priests and soldiers, none of them are pulling the strings on this weekend. Their sense of control is, is just a farce. John 10, 17 to 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So theirs was ever a hopeless attempt. John Piper says this. He's speaking about a little bit about the reality of what the resurrection means for us today. He says, it was hopeless then. It is hopeless today, and it will always be hopeless. Try as they may, people can't keep Jesus down. They can't keep him buried. They may use physical force or academic scorn or media blackout or political harassment or religious caricature. For a season, they will think the tomb is finally sealed, but it never works. He breaks out. And then Piper goes on to give this as an illustration. He says, China may have been closed for 40 years to Western missionaries. And it's not because Jesus slipped and fell into the tomb. He stepped in. And when it was sealed over, he saved 50 million Chinese from the inside without Western missionaries. And when it was time, he pushed away the stone so we could see what he had done. The tomb couldn't keep him. The grave couldn't hold him. He comes and he goes as he pleases. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ our Lord. Therefore, he says to you and I, go. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is how we are to live in the reality of the empty tomb. Now we live in a world where often there is darkness around us and sometimes that darkness feels like an insurmountable mountain. Maybe something has happened in your life this week and that's how it feels in your life. But the truth is this, the darkness is no more in control than those men were on that day, than those gods were in control when Jesus burst forth from the grave. 
when they think their problems are buried for good. He's just working from inside the tomb. It's what he said, isn't it? In John 12, 24, he prophesied, he is the grain of wheat fallen into the ground that dies and bears much fruit. And he bears fruit Because he is the risen Lord, he bears it in the church, he bears it through the proclamation of the gospel, and he bears fruit in your life, Christian. And so you can trust him and go with him and know this, that in the end you cannot come out the loser because of that trust. Number two, what we see in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 28 is a a missed chance to worship. A missed chance to worship. The famous atheist philosopher and writer Ayn Rand once said, admiration is the rarest and highest of pleasures. She meant not the pleasure of being admired, but the pleasure of admiring the truly admirable. And she was right, though she tragically missed what she was created to see and admire. We were created for glory. We were created on Easter morning to see glory, to desire and to appreciate the glorious. It's why we, when you go for a walk, you want to walk in Hillcrest, not in Kempton Park, right? When you go for a hike, you hike beside streams of water, not through industrial parks. It's why when you go on vacation, you go to the mountains or to the sea because you were created for glory. It's why I love watching soccer, which is called the beautiful game. Or if you're a rugby fan, it's why I'll remember till the day I die, the 1995 Rugby World Cup final, we beat New Zealand 15-12 after extra time. It was glorious. We're created to see and recognize glory. We scratch that glory itch in millions of ways, sometimes in good ways, good gifts that have been given to us by the Father, the faces of our children, the kindness of a stranger, We see glory. Sometimes we do it in sinful ways. We pervert beauty. We twist it to conform it to to our own depravity. But all the while, in all of these things, what we are is we are walking evidence of the fact that we were created to worship. And today the question is this. Do we gaze upon the resurrection, gaze upon an empty tomb and worship? Do we see glory? Do we take the chance? Do we see the one delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification? The way you see today shapes your life. And you may see an empty grave and rejoice and happily give your life to the risen one. Or you may see and be unmoved. You may leave this place thinking that there is nothing to his claims, that there is nothing to shout about, that there is nothing to build your life upon. You may leave thinking that your days are, to, are yours to do with as you please, your time, your treas- treasures, your, your talents, yours to use for your own purposes, your own glory, your own interests. And you may believe that there is no consequence to that. But I want to tell you the truth is that if you come to this passage and you leave with a a small view of Christ, a diminished view of Christ, an inconsequential view of him, that there is great tragedy and great consequence to that. There There is a contrast in this passage. We see the women and we see the guards. They both saw the same thing. One group worships, the other doesn't. Matthew's writing for the sake of worship. 
That's why in both encounters we see in Matthew 28, where people see Jesus, where he says what happens is worship in verse 9 and verse 17. It's why in this section alone, he uses the word behold four times. Open your eyes, behold. And he sets up a contrast so that you would not find yourself on the wrong side of that seeing. Look at verses 1 to 3. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. We know that on this day in the darkness, the women are walking to the tomb and they are actually speaking to one another from the other gospels saying, what are we gonna do about that stone? We can't roll the stone away by ourselves. They seem not to have any idea about the the God that is posted there. There's no hope for them to see the Lord on this day. But when they get there, it's all taken care of, isn't it? I love that picture, an angel sitting on the stone D.A. Carson says, what had been an insuperable obstacle for the woman, speaking of the stone, was no more than a place to sit for an angel. And he's waiting with a message, a glorious message, the message, really, the foundation of our entire faith. In verse 6, he says, he is not here. He has risen, as he said. We say amen to that church. Maybe you've heard the story of the little girl who was arguing with her Sunday school teacher. And her Sunday school teacher hadn't intended to start a theological debate. He was just trying to comfort his, his, or encourage the children in his class when he said to them, Jesus is everywhere. To which the little girl responded, I know one place where he is not, and that's in the tomb. And I love this little rebuke. The angels have this little rebuke for the woman. He's not here for he has risen as he said. He said that this was going to happen and it has. This wasn't an unanticipated and yet fortunate reversal of an unexpected fate. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he had said. And so there's an invitation in the angel's words as well. In verse 6, they say to them, come, see the place where he lay. The angel doesn't say, there's no need to check, just take it by faith. He doesn't say, there's no need to seek him out. You'll, you'll just find him in your heart. This is not a, a mystical, personal experience here. This is seeing and touching. They will see him. They will fall at his feet. They will grab hold of him and they will worship him as they see him in the flesh. And there's an invitation in this to us as well, the invitation of the resurrection. Christianity is not a call to blind faith. Oh, you just have to have faith and believe. Matthew is saying, weigh it up. Consider the evidence and weigh up the evidence. Walk into the tomb with the woman. Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary puts it this way. He says, "The, the resurrection calls for the renewal of our minds, not a lobotomy, By following the woman into the tomb, we are to open our ears and eyes, our minds, as they did. Now, where are the gods in all of this? In verse 4, and for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. They were ready for a lot. They were ready for a fight, but they were not ready for this. Scared stiff is how we say it in the English. 
And what Matthew shows us here is a contrast between these two groups, and it's a contrast of different kinds of fear. Did you notice that everyone's afraid in this passage? They all fear the angel, but their fear is different. The gods, their fear leads to an incapacitation, an inability to move, a paralysis. But the woman's fear is different. It's a fear of action, a fear of moving, because it's a fear mixed with something else. Did you see that? It's mixed with a joy in verse 8. They depart quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And why is this? Why is there a difference in their fears? I believe it's because the gods saw what they did not want to see, but the women saw what they did. That's why an angel can say to them in verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The gods had come to the tomb dismissively. The women had come to the tomb seeking. They had come to the tomb in love, and the result of their seeking is joy. How do you come today? Do you come seeking? Do you come in love? Or do you come to write him off? Do you come to lay down your life because he is Lord? Or do you come thinking that you reign and that you are Lord of your life? The women leave in obedience. They obey the angel's commission. And so they they go. And what happens in their obedience? Something wonderful. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy to, to run and tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And people have often wondered this. Scholars have asked the question why is it that to all, of all the people he could have appeared to, why did Jesus appear to the woman first? Why not to the, the 11 apostles? or to his family, or to the the important people in the world, the movers and shakers, the religious leaders. Why not come and say, I told you so. Why does he appear to the woman? All four gospels pointed out. By the way, if if you are making the story up, the best choice of eyewitnesses in this day was not the woman, right? It wasn't the woman. The Bible doesn't say But I believe it could be as simple as this, that this is a a, a blessing of kindness given from the heart of the Lord to these women who, who love their Savior, the last to leave the cross and the first to be at the tomb. It's a special gift in response to devoted love. It's in their obedience that he meets them. And their joy as they go, this special kindness. And it's where Jesus meets us again and again and again, no matter what we are going through or the the cost of our discipleship in our obedience. As Piper puts it, seven steps down the road of obedience is where he meets with us. Perhaps it could have been different for the God. It should have been different. But they missed out on this precious moment, this chance to worship Will you miss out today? The resurrection is calling to us today, to the heights of joyful worship in the path, the road to obedience. Do you answer that call? Do you say, yes, he is my Lord and I will follow him? Number three, we see finally a tragic valuation. Let's look at verses 11 to 15 again. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. 
And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, there is great irony and there is great tragedy here. The irony here, one scholar calls it a, a delicious irony that Matthew is serving up for us. What did they want to avoid in the posting of the guard? They wanted to avoid the disciples stealing the body and then telling everybody that Jesus has risen again. Now, after the resurrection, they are left with one, one choice. In order to cover up the truth, we must lie and say, the disciples stole the body. And what they ironically achieve is this, they only help to further the spread of the story of the empty tomb. Now think about this. Matthew is writing this gospel in the, in the 60s. If you are a skeptic, think about this for a moment. Writing a few decades after the resurrection, after these events have happened, even if you assume that Matthew is making all of it up, what you have to realize when you come to this historical document, there are documents afterwards, Justin Martin, the second century, also addresses the same concern, the same theory, though the disciples stole the body. What you have to acknowledge is that it implies something, doesn't it? What does it imply? That the tomb was empty, at the very least. That the Jews knew the tomb was empty. They had to come up for, with a reason for an empty tomb. Whatever else you do with the resurrection, you have to account for a tomb that is empty. There is no writing anywhere in history of somebody pointing and saying, no, there's the tomb. There's, we know where he was. We, he has his body. Nobody produces a body. And think about their plan. Think about this lie. Those disciples who fled into the night, hiding in their holes. Somehow they decided to rally together, to defy Rome, to steal the destroyed body of their failed religious leader so that they could lie to the world. And so what they did is they snuck in. Somehow all of the Roman guard fell asleep on duty. And so they snuck in under the, the nose of Rome and they broke the seal and rolled the massive stone away without waking up any of the guard. And then wonder upon wonder, the guards afterwards can say, we are eyewitnesses to the fact that the disciples stole the body, even though they were sleeping the entire time. There's irony in this passage, but there's tragedy as well. The tragedy is that they did actually see. They did actually see. I wonder what Matthew means when he says, they told the chief priests all that had taken place. Did they see Jesus? Maybe, maybe not. But what they saw was certainly enough to make this very tragic. They saw enough. Enough to question their former dismissiveness of this man. Enough to make it sad that they would go to the authorities rather than to the followers and say, we have got some questions. We have questions that need answering. We need your help. And what of the council? Do they cross-examine these men? There's no hint in this passage of any kind of curiosity or sincere investigation. Instead, what we see is a, a cold and calculated pragmatism. They don't ask 
Did you really see an angel? Tell us more about the earthquake. They had questioned Jesus and asked him for a sign. Jesus had promised them one sign. What was that sign? The sign of the prophet Jonah. His death, his burial, and his resurrection on the third day, he had said to them, well, he had fulfilled that sign, and still they chose not to believe. And the truth is, it was too costly. It would have been too costly for them to believe. The potential toll on their pride, on their public perception, their convenience, and their comfort, the system that they'd worked so hard to build around themselves, everything that they loved in the world was at stake. The cost was too great, so instead of paying that toll, they pay the bribe. Bring out the wallet. It worked, didn't it, with Judas? It must have been a large sum of money. Matthew just says a sufficient sum, enough to convince a proud Roman guard to claim that they had fallen asleep on duty. A dangerous thing, by the way, to admit. But maybe they knew, this guard knew, that their options were slim. What are we going to tell the governor? It's not like he's going to believe the truth. We're in trouble here. Maybe at least in this way, there's some political protection for us. And so there's a symbiotic relationship that they enter into. We need them and they need us. How many a deal has so been struck in the darkness? And it's tragic. What should have happened is a a reflection leading to an acknowledgement of the truth. We were wrong about this man. He is who he said he is. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the resurrection and the life. The God should have sought him out and come to him for hope and for life and then trusted him with the results of that action. Let us lay it upon him and trust him. Instead, everyone doubles down for the sake of gain and for the sake of saving their skin. And so we learn finally here a difficult truth. That following the Lord, the risen Lord, doesn't mean in this life worldly success or worldly gain. It doesn't mean safety in the world. Here's where the truth of the resurrection becomes even more convincing for me. There was a cost for those who believed. And it was a cost that not everyone was willing to pay Maybe you are here today and you say, I don't know about this whole thing. Maybe Matthew made it all up. He made up even the the story of the God. If that's the case, if you say maybe the disciples did just steal the body, the bigger question still is this. The question you have to ask is why? Why would they lie? Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary again says, men might die because they are brainwashed or fooled. We can think of Japanese kamikaze pilots or Islamic terrorists sacrificing their lives for honor or reward. But men usually don't die for something they are certain is a lie. If the disciples knew where the body of Jesus was, what could possibly be the motive for preaching the resurrection? And he goes on to quote N.T. Wright, who says, It was three centuries before anyone gained anything except insult, danger, torture, and death by believing the resurrection of Christ. And yet something turned these cowards into courageous martyrs. It is the boldness of the disciples that convinces my heart. The boldness of Paul 
on the road to Damascus, ready to persecute the church, who says, on the way I saw the Lord, and He changed my life. They beheld the risen Christ. Matthew saw Jesus again with his eyes, and that's why he writes. That's why he would convince you and lay this option before you. There are two options at the end of the book of Matthew. You've heard of the Great Commission, but that's not the only commission that's given, isn't it, in in Matthew 28. There's a commission before that where the Jewish leaders say to the gods, go and teach, go and tell them they stole the body and we'll pay you and we'll protect you for it. And then there's Jesus' commission. Go teach something else. Go preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Make disciples of all nations. Teach the truth. Don't do it for money. Don't do it for fame or for glory or for power. Those things are not going to come for you. Do it because I am alive. I am with you always to the end of the age. Because all authority has been given to me. That's why you can go. Go and lay down your life. Because I am worth it. Is he worth it, church? He is indeed. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to ask, Father, that um, you who know the hearts of all, that you would search hearts today and and where there are are hearts of those perhaps who are, are skeptical about these things, who are not sure about these things, I pray, Father, that you would open hearts, that the potential cost of following Christ would not be the thing that causes men and women not to come and consider the the evidence of the empty tomb. I pray that you would open eyes to the truth. O Lord, that you would reveal yourself as the risen and glorious Savior to our hearts, that we would know the truth of the resurrection. O Lord, we pray this prayer not just for our church. We pray that this would happen throughout the world on this day, that more people would come to know you, our glorious King. We want to worship you, and we don't want people to miss out on that chance to worship. So, Lord, we ask as well that you would make us bold like you made them bold. Help us to speak the truth. Help us not to shy back. Oh, Lord, give us a courage to go, knowing that you are with us wherever we go. We thank you for this truth. Amen. Reading from Hebrews 13 as a benediction. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, church.